or a bunch of full stomachs, y'all sure sing good after a big meal on Thanksgiving um, and all those leftovers, right? So I want you to take God's Word this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And we are continuing the series in Matthew 8 and 9 uh, of Jesus bringing the kingdom to the broken. And whenever we hear talk of God's kingdom, we're talking about God ruling and reigning in our hearts. Uh, Jesus came for broken people. And in God's Word this morning, uh, we come to a passage of Scripture where it speaks about two interruptions in the life of Jesus. And because of these two interruptions, we can see that there were people bringing many different kinds of needs to the Lord. And among two people who brought great need to the Lord was a man who had a daughter who was dying and a woman who had a serious medical condition that was chronic, it was ongoing, it was a problem for her. And both of these people were in desperate need. But what it is, is God used this desperate need to bring them to himself. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Because this text actually is a message that speaks to us about human nature. And it illustrates a number of different spiritual truths. First of all, I, I saw when I was looking at this passage and I was reviewing my own life that we'll never learn to fully trust Jesus until we come to the end of ourselves. And so when we see these two people coming before Jesus, we realize really they have, they've exhausted all other options. And as long as there is something we can fall back on to trust in ourselves, we won't fully cast ourselves all on the Lord. But also I noticed that, you know, Jesus welcomes people who come to the end of themselves. And um, anybody who reaches out to Jesus in faith has never turned away. And then I notice also in our text that nothing's too hard for Jesus. And I don't know what you're going through today, but if you've heard anything in our time of worship so far, in the singing, the music, the lyrics, it all speaks to us that we have a Savior who can do anything. And so this morning, I want to ask you to turn with me to God's Word, to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to be reading verses 18 through 26 this morning. And here's what we find there. Um, and as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and they followed him. Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind him and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Now when Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. 
Now, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in, he took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. Our text gives uh, an illustration, an account of two individuals who came to Jesus, but only after they had come to the end of themselves. What does God use to bring us to the end of ourselves so that he can bring us to Jesus? In our text, we see several things, but first of all, I see when I looked at the passage that God may use times of desperation to bring us to Jesus. The first person to come to Jesus, the scripture tells us, was a leader of a Jewish synagogue there in Capernaum. And from the parallel accounts in Mark chapter 5 and also in Luke chapter 8, we learn that this man's name was Jairus. Typically, the synagogue leader was a Pharisee. <clears throat> and in general, we know that Pharisees were not particularly fond of Jesus. They felt that Jesus was misguiding people. But Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 tells us that this synagogue leader, most likely a Pharisee, differed from many other Pharisees. He had a different attitude. And the way we detect his different attitude is we see, first of all, in verse 18, that when he came to Jesus, he knelt down before him. Mark tells us that he actually fell on his face at Jesus' feet. So he differs from most Pharisees in that he is not, uh, he's very respectful of Jesus. He bows down, he kneels before him. But we notice also when we look at the passage of Scripture that it's true of this man that he is different from other Pharisees because he actually trusts that Jesus can heal. He believes that Jesus has power like no other. The Pharisees saw Jesus perform great miracles. But yet this man comes, and we notice in verse 19 that the Scripture tells us he, he cries out to Jesus. He said, come, lay your hand on my daughter, and she will be made well. So he had faith, he had trust in Jesus, and Jesus showed, <clears throat> don't rake leaves on Saturday before you preach on Sunday, it's bad. Yeah, thank you, water, agua, muchas gracias. Wow. Thank you. So Matthew 19 tells us that the affirmation that came from uh, this encounter as this man came to Jesus, and he came, he showed this respect for the Lord Jesus. But not only that, he showed that he actually believed, he actually trusted that Jesus, if he could just get Jesus to come to his daughter, that all would be well. And that is a Wonderful thing because the scripture tells us Jesus must have approved of the man's attitude because it tells us 
that he and the disciples, they got up and they went with him. Now, when we compare Matthew's account with the accounts of the same event given in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8, it's uncertain whether Jairus' 12-year-old daughter was dead or near death when he came to see Jesus. But in the parallel passages, what we're told is that she was dying when the father came and that she died while he was en route. Matthew combines these two uh, passages, these two ideas, and he says that Jairus came urgently because he knew his daughter was very near death, but unknown to him, while he is en route, on his way to get Jesus, his daughter dies. So here we have a parent. We have a lot of parents here this morning. A lot of grandparents. So here we have a parent who had a desperate need. And he came to Jesus. Sometimes in our lives, God uses a desperate situation to bring us to the feet of Jesus. But secondly, I see that God may use discouragement to bring us to Jesus, and God may use his word to bring us to Jesus. In the crowd, there was a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Now, in addition to this bleeding making her very tired physically, she could not take place in public gatherings. And she couldn't go to temples, she couldn't go to synagogues, she couldn't be around other people because, as we read in Luke chapter 15, while she was in this particular condition, she was considered unclean. And anyone who came into contact with her, direct contact with her, was also considered unclean. Now, uncleanness is not a sin. It merely disqualified a woman from coming into contact with others. But because of the constant bleeding, what we find is here is a woman who was not permitted to enter into a worship gathering like this one for 12 years. And anyone who came into contact with her didn't want to be around her because it would mean for seven days they would also be unclean and they couldn't go to worship with God's people. So what we have here is we have a situation where this woman is a, has a social problem. She has a religious problem. And all that goes along with the physical discomfort that she was experiencing. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that she suffered a great deal from many doctors over the years and that she had gone to them for a lot of different cures. She'd spent everything that she had to try to get some relief for her condition, but nothing seemed to work. Now, did you hear me say what I said? I mean, she had ran through all of her insurance money And then she ran through all of her reserves, seeking doctors to help her. And there were all kinds of suggested cures. Some of them kind of bordered on the, the edge of uh, uh, just uh, a, a downright kind of magical potion. I mean, it, it didn't seem like anything that was remotely related to anything that was medical. And yet she had not been healed. So here we have a woman. Let's, let's review. 
She's defiled. She can't go to worship. She's destitute. She spent everything she had on cures. She hadn't been able to go to worship for all these years. She can't be around other people because they're afraid to come into contact with her. So she's socially ostracized. For 12 years, she's been in this condition. She's discouraged. She's discouraged. Now, from different accounts, uh, Luke tells us that while she was growing, the crowds were nearly crushing Jesus, and a woman suffering bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors yet could not be healed by any approached Jesus from behind and she touched the end of his robe and instantly her bleeding stopped now underline that because if you go back and you look at Matthew chapter 9 verse 20 you'll notice the same phrase appears there as it does here in Luke chapter 8 it's this phrase the end of his robe now, from these accounts, we might get the impression that here is this throng of people, and here is this woman caught up in this crowd who wants to get to Jesus, wants to reach out and touch him, and so she's pushing, she's shoving her way through the crowd. You can imagine, it's, it's a parade-like atmosphere, rows of people, she's trying to work her way through as best she can, excuse me, coming up on your right. Coming up on your left, you know, trying to bob and weave her way through there in hopes that she can somehow, if not get to the front of the line, get to the second of the, uh, row. And that somehow, with all of her energy, if she times it just right, she can somehow just lunge and touch Jesus. Well, that makes for great cinema. But that's not what's happening here. In his book, The Forgotten Jesus, Robbie Gallaty makes a comment about this particular instance that was very insightful as I read it. He, he maintains that this was not an accidental touch, and then he goes into Scripture explaining as to why this woman had a very specific message, uh, mission in mind. She was laser-focused on doing something that day as she worked her way through that crowd uh, one of the features of clothing that was worn by Jewish men was, was tassels and these were located on the corner of their garments in keeping with the directions that are given in Numbers chapter 15 verses 37 to 40 and I want to read that for you right now Numbers chapter uh, 15 Beginning at verse 37, it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and not prostitute yourselves by following your own heart and your own eyes. This way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. Now Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 12 says that God had specified what was to go on the corners of the cloak. 
It says, make tassels for the four corners of your outer garment that you wear. Now, there are some Hebrew words that appear in this text, and I just want to share a few of them. One of them is a tzitzit, and it's a word which means tassels or fringe. It's the outer part of a person's garment. And being an observant man, Jesus would have had this kind of garment on his body. So he would have had this outer garment that would have gone from possibly head all the way to his feet. And at the end of it, there would have been tassels attached to it. And so the or tassels had additional significance in relation to Malachi's prophecy of the Messiah that is given in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And I want you to listen to what it says there. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Now, when Malachi writes about the Son of Righteousness, he's not talking about an inanimate, an inanimate object. He's talking about a person. And the person about whom he's speaking is the promised Messiah who is coming. And that phrase, Son of Righteousness, is a Hebrew idiom for Messiah. Now the Hebrew word kanah found here in Malachi is the word we translate into English as, get this, wings. And so if you put all of these contextual connotations together, it's not difficult for you to come to a conclusion that when we look at the Malachi passage what he's saying is that Messiah will appear and he will have healing in his wings, literally the four corners of his garment. And his arrival will be associated with healing and the restoring of his people. And this is what the crowds were seeing in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. But his healing was more than physical. His healing was also spiritual. And it was deep. And it was lasting. Mark tells us that Jesus realized himself that when this woman had touched him, and he didn't know at the time who it was, he was surrounded by a great crowd. And that's why when we read the accounts in other places, when Jesus says, who touched me? He realized somebody had touched him because power had gone out of him. And yet when he said, who touched me? The disciples, perhaps who were, y'all remember the character Jairus? They're following Jairus to his house. What's going on at Jairus' house? His daughter was dying on his way there. He gets news that she has died. What do you think Jairus wants to do? He wants to get home as quick as possible. Yet here they are, and Jesus is pausing in the midst of this crowd, and he's asking the disciples who probably have Jairus on their mind, look around, and they say, what do you mean, who touched you? There are like bukus of people out here in this crowd. There are people touching you from everywhere. And Jesus, sensing that someone had touched him and that power had gone out of him, he calls out, and the woman steps four, and she realizes it's time for me to give my testimony. Why do you think she's been hung, hanging back? Why do you think she has not stepped forward? Why does she not just offer herself? 
because she's unclean. And anyone who came into contact with her would also be made unclean. She does not want to be detected by anybody, even though she is working and pushing her way through that crowd. And that really shows us something about her faith. Because Jesus turns and he says, Take courage, daughter. Your faith has what? Saved you. Now she was healed immediately, physically, but now Jesus pronounces, you've been saved. Now we know at this point that Jesus has not yet been to the cross to pay for our sins. When Jesus announces that she has been saved, she's saved in the same way all the Old Testament saints were saved. Saved the same way Abraham was saved. Saved the same way Moses was saved. Saved the same way Elijah the prophet was saved. And how were they saved? By faith. And how were they saved by faith? Because it wasn't just giving mental assent to a set of facts about God. It's not just us saying, Jesus, you're the Savior of the world, or coming forward and, uh, you know, making some sort of a decision about that and then giving no action or no steps to show that you're following Jesus. She actually took action and reached out and trusting God's Word, it was her faith and action that saved her. Now, we don't do anything to work our way to salvation. It's simply an explanation for us today that there's no such thing as belief without acting on what you say you believe. That's what this woman did here. And that's good news for the hurting. It's good news for those who are walking through pain. It's good news for those who are struggling in some area of life, and maybe that describes you today. And I think the word for you today is take courage. You're not lost in a crowd. Jesus sees the individual in the crowd. Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows your situation. He knows what you're thinking right this very second. And what this passage is telling us is if it describes you today and you're discouraged, let your discouragement bring you to Jesus. And if you're searching for answers and looking for something in whom you can place your trust, put your trust in Jesus and believe God's Word because God's Word will bring you to Jesus. But I notice a third thing in this passage, and we close with this. God may use delay to bring us to Jesus. When Jesus stopped to meet the need of the woman, it delayed his arrival to Jairus' house. You can almost feel Jairus' anxiety level rising, right? Right? I mean, he's tapping his foot, 
He's checking the sundial on his watch. Jairus is eager to get home. And then while Jesus is still speaking with the woman, Mark 5.35 and Luke 8.49, they tell us the very thing that Jairus feared happened. Messengers from his house showed up and they tell Jairus, Jairus, we're sorry to tell you, but your daughter has died. Don't bother the master anymore. There's no need in bringing Jesus. Scripture tells us in Luke 8, verse 50, that when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be saved. And Jairus continued to trust Jesus. And next, Matthew 9, verses 23 to 26 reports this. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him after the crowd had been put outside. He, Jesus, went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout the whole area. Luke's recording of these events offers a little more detail. This is what it says in Luke's gospel. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. And everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand. He called out, child, get up. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, uh, you think? But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Now, a Jewish funeral had several elements to it. It had rending of garments. It had the playing of flutes. It had, way, uh, it had uh, wailing for the dead. And we still see some of these things in the Middle East today. R.C. Sproul he writes, the music of flutes and wailing could be heard. It was customary among the Jews of that time that when someone died, the mourning was public, not private. In fact, when there was a death, even the poorest family was expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. And they did this to guarantee that no one ever grieved alone. So as Jesus arrived at the home of Jairus, there was a great deal of chaos. You get the picture? I mean, there's people, there's noise, there's casseroles, who knows what else. And Jesus and Jairus kick everybody out of the house. And Jesus says, she's only sleeping. Well, you've got these paid professional mourners who have been hired to come to the house to help this family through the grieving process. 
and you've got these mourners who are there. <clears throat> they have been around many dead people. This is what they do. They help people with their grief. When somebody dies, people hire them. They come. They're there. They have seen a corpse. They know what they're talking about. There's no mistake. This girl is dead. What kind of joy do you think it was on the face of those parents when that little girl stood up? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see the look on the faces of those professional whalers when that little girl walked out hand in hand with her mom and dad? Friends, the lesson here is sometimes God uses delays to test and to grow our faith so we will learn to live what we say we believe even when we don't feel it and even when we can't figure it out for ourselves. You know, these are great stories of Jesus doing what no one else can do. So we have to ask ourselves, how should we respond? All right. I know one of the things I've been doing all week long as I reflected on this passage of Scripture. I mean, we should thank God for the things He has used and the things He uses to bring us to the feet of Jesus. I think secondly... We need to come to the realization that true faith requires courage and action. We'll never see God act greatly until we ask greatly. And then, how should we respond? Well, if you're going to surrender your life to someone, follow someone who can raise the dead back to life. Because Jesus alone is worthy to be trusted. Jesus alone is the only one worthy to follow as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand together for prayer, may we? Father, as we have prayed today, we would just um, thank you for giving us your word as a record that you are a real person who lived in this world and understands our needs. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save us. Thank you, God, for all those things that you have used in my life over the years to bring me to your feet. Today, I pray for that uh, person who is here today who is in a dis desperate situation, doesn't know where to turn, has exhausted all possibilities. Lord, I pray that they would let go of the rope and fall into your arms and trust Jesus today. And that they could see you come to their rescue.
Father, I pray for that person who is discouraged today, that has tried many different things to find happiness and joy and been met with disappointment time and time again, that they would realize that this is the way that you are bringing them to yourself. Father, I thank you for this story of resurrection that you alone are able to give life to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life to give us life eternal and thank you for this testimony of one that you healed physically Lord we believe that you are able and so today we come to you Lord Jesus And if today you would trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I want to encourage you to do that now. Would you just in your heart say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive me, Lord, and come in and save me now. Thank you, Jesus, that you promised to come in and save me if I will just ask, believe, trust. And this prayer is my action step, Jesus. I'm coming to you in prayer, asking you to save me. I trust you. I believe you. Help me to follow you and live for you. If that's your prayer today, and you're watching this online, I want you just to reach out, if you would. There's a place there on our website where you can click and you can connect with us and let us know about your decision today. Or perhaps you've made a decision in our worship time here this morning. Don't leave this place this morning without telling somebody about your decision. One of our ministers will be here at the front. I'll be here. Andy will be here. And we just want to encourage you to come and tell us about your decision to trust Jesus as your Savior today. If you have some other need, you would like prayer, we have people here be happy to pray with you about that need that you have in your life. Now as we sing in response to God and the way He has spoken to us this morning, let's sing to the Lord, not to each other, but to Jesus right now.